Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Andy Nen. One of the world's most respected brand strategists, Andy is a founder of one of the UK's most successful agencies, Lucky Generals. Boasting a client roster including Amazon, Virgin Atlantic and Yorkshire Tea, they've been shortlisted for Campaigns Agency of the Year five years in a row. Bloody show-offs. Andy's book, Go Luck Yourself, reveals how chance can play its part in the creative process and how you can stack the odds in your brand's favour. Andy says... You can wish bad luck upon yourself in a good way. When you've got less money or less time, it can force you to think of something really creative. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you for that. uh, I'm so glad that you got to do that, but not me. So uh, thank you. (laughs) It's why we do it. It's why we do it. Right, seven quick fires. Mac or PC? Mac. London or New York? London. Dave Trott or David Abbott? Oh my God, I've got, I started off at AMV, so I'm going to have to say David Abbott, although huge regards for Trotty as well. Uh, Yorkshire tea or Taylor's coffee bags? Uh, Taylor's coffee bags I'm addicted to, yeah. Kenny Dalgleish or Henrik Larsson? Henrik Larsson. Ooh, nice. Uh, Four leaf clover or lucky rabbit foot? Four leaf clover. Oh, these are too easy. What, the last one, songs, get lucky or I should be so lucky? It's got to be get lucky, which I think luckily for us, launched the month that we started Lucky Generals. And it, it looked like we had manipulated the UK charts, I think. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. That is wonderful. You lucky, lucky bastards. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you, Andy, for joining us. Really happy to have you on. We like to, on Call to Action, celebrate routes that guests have taken in their career. So I read you stumbled into advertising after studying law at Edinburgh University. But what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job that led you into this this land well i grew up in the middle of nowhere in a very sort of rural part of scotland so all, all my first jobs are the sort of things that you probably did in medieval times uh, you know it's like chopping thistles and weeding wild oats which is called <laughs> roguing by the way it's like a specific name or like you know potato picking and stuff like that so i did loads of that sort of stuff loads of factory jobs summer jobs in clothes shops and you know hotels and all that sort of so nothing nothing that was remotely you know sort of fodder for a cv in you know in, in advertising in or in the bright lights of london or anything like that but actually i think it was in retrospect quite good because that, that sort of work you know just reminds you that there's other people and jobs and lives out there sort of thing so it is, is quite grounding and then my first proper job as i said before was uh, uh amv with uh you know, when, when David Abbott was still very much in his uh, pomp and I was a little pipsqueak, but it, it was a great place to start. And, and But how did you, so what happened then in between the uh, chopping thistles, etc., and, and David Abbott? Yeah, it seems an, an, an unlikely trajectory. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I did, I did law um, sort of because I couldn't really, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I thought that's quite a general 
thing to I know that obviously there's a very specific sort of uh, vocational thing if you want to be a lawyer but I just thought it's quite you know it'll buy me a bit of time you know four years to work on what I did want to do and and then and then I quite early decided I didn't want to do law at practicing it um, but I spoke to a tutor who's now a very famous person called Alexander McCall Smith who's a great sort of one of the top selling writers in the world um, and he sort of said well if you don't want to do that if you don't want to practice the law, but you like some of the elements of it, like putting a case together for a client, but you want to do it in a more creative environment, that was my sort of um, desire, then you should try this thing called advertising. And um, so it was a real fluke conversation. And I started applying for ad agencies and very luckily sort of got in the door at AMV. I, I applied as an account handler, by the way. And I think they probably took one look at me and thought, this guy is going to wreck our business and bankrupt us. Um, but we might shove him in planning and he might sort of be all right sort of thing. Yeah, you use the word fluke there. Is that the same as lucky? I guess I'm probably doing that horrible sort of false modesty sort of uh, <laughs> pretending it was a pure fluke. Flukes, I think, are are entirely based on, on luck. I guess I guess what we can all do is put ourselves in lucky situations, can't we? We can just... So in that case, I suppose it was a bit of a reach for me, you know, like... Um, I had no real right to, you know, no connections with the world of advertising and my degree was nothing to do with it. So it was probably a bit cheeky to sort of apply for this job that I didn't know very much about. But, um, you know, sometimes you've got to do that, don't you? You've got to put yourself in, you've got to apply for the thing to get it. You mentioned in that advice that there, there were uh, parallels in terms of putting a case together, which might be uh, relevant in, in, in Adlands. What parts of law and studying law did you not like that put you off going further into that world? Just the formulaic bits, because I think the big difference is obviously that as a lawyer, the whole point of it is, I mean, stating the obvious, is to follow rules, you know, but to follow precedents. You know, so if something has been proven in a previous case, then you should follow that. And yeah, you might build on it, but you're you're really following and applying rules, where of course our job is much more, you know, hopefully about breaking rules and sort of, you know, precedent is no... No use. It's the actual opposite. Yeah. Good answer. It's almost as if you were expecting that. Well, no, I wasn't. But do you know? Do you know what? I, I always get the, the real bummer is that people, because quite a lot of people, maybe I bang on about it too much, but people will say, "Oh, you did law. What's the answer to this?" And they fail to realise that you know my legal experience is now like about thirty years old, and based on a completely different. You know, Scots law is actually quite different from English law, so I'm probably routinely giving really bad legal advice to people about their, you know, divorces or property um, causing damage wherever I go. So I should probably shut up about it, really. No, don't, Andy. I Join me. I, I willingly give out legal advice despite, despite having no legal training whatsoever. I've just been in a few, a few ugly IP scraps, that's all. Yeah, exactly. So then, so that must have been amazing working um, uh, alongside, if not, you know, below David Abbott. How, how did you find the early days there? Yeah, I mean, I was certainly uh, not alongside the great man himself. I was very, although he was, you know, one of the lovely things about him, he was incredibly uh, kind and encouraging of, you know, young people as, as all were. It was a really nice culture there. Um, it was a great place to start because they were, you know, it was a, you know, it was a really classical advertising training, good values, you know, they believed in running the place properly, treating people well. And, you know, doing great advertising that, you know, really sort of treated people with respect and, you know, as intelligent people. So um, it wasn't wasn't like, you know, crazy rock and roll. There were other maybe potentially somewhat cooler agencies um, out there. But 
in terms of just doing really great work that was incredibly effective and uh, you know long running campaigns that was a real big uh, thing of theirs. Uh, it was just such a brilliant place to you know have a formal start in the world really. And and was your role? Did you say you got the account management role, or your role was different to the one you applied? No, they 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 literally. I had never heard of planning or strategy. You know, because you don't do. I mean, I'd barely heard of account management. But so I applied as that, and then in the interview they said the good news. You know, at the end they said the good news you've got this job, but uh, and they quoted it very nicely um, by saying you think you'd be better doing this other thing, which I I was just so happy to get the job at. I just took it, and um, I'm really grateful, actually, that they they had uh, sort of directed me in that, in that in that place because it's it's quite unusual. I mean, most people don't start as strategists, and I always sort of say that's not about you know if you start off doing something else that you can still change later and be a great strategist. You know, some of the best strategists were suits or um, you know media planners or you know clients or all sorts of other things. I think there's few there's few consistencies I've spotted, and as you know, we've recorded um, we're just over a hundred episodes now for Call to Action, and there's few consistencies to that route in that I've spotted. One tends to be that the most, uh, I suppose, talented people that we've caught tend to take a scenic route in. Now that might be a route that includes uh, other industries entirely. The other consistency I've noticed is that account management or however you might call it, I know that you know Nick would call it client partners, whatever, but it tends to be the way in for most. And, and as you kind of hinted at there, maybe it's just because it's one of the few things that people have either heard of or can quite, quite simply understand versus the other titles like planning and strategy. But also, like you said, there's huge benefits to that because it gives you that kind of empathy and wider knowledge of the business. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think, I suppose, from an agency, now I see it from the different side of the, you know, the coin, um, I guess it... It's easier to make a difference right out of college or right out of school as an account um, handler or client service, whatever you want to call it, um, because you, so you can make yourself useful. Whereas it's it's a little bit harder, I think, to be taken seriously as a strategist straight out the door, because I guess your clients might understandably think, well, what is this? rather inexperienced person got to tell me about my you know, my business and my brand. So I don't know how I managed to wing it for a couple of years, but uh, maybe people were thinking about that all, all the way through every meeting. But, uh, you know, I, I like the fact that they did, they, they did stick with it and train me very quickly. It was a very sort of, you know, they gave huge amounts of responsibility very quickly, which I think is a good lesson for all of us, you know, accelerate people's sort of journey. And so at what stage then, how many years in did you think that one day you wanted to start up your own, your own shop? Um, it was probably maybe a decade or a bit more in. Um, so I, I started working. I, I'd known this amazing um, account director at AMV called Helen Calcraft and worked with her for a bit. And then she started her own agency up. She was, a, I don't think it's ungallant of me to say, she's a couple of years older than me. Um, and now, and then she started up her, a very good agency called MCBD. I was, I was working in the States at the time. And I'd always really liked working with her back in AMV. So, so I, about 20 years ago, I, in fact, literally exactly 20 years ago, I think, um, I went back to, you know, she got me back over from Goodby Silverstein in San Francisco to, to sort of head up planning her, her startup. And, and I was, I, I learned lots just watching her and the other partners there running a startup because that was obviously very different from, you know, uh, AMV and the other big agencies I'd been at. Um, and I, I thought this is great. And then eventually, I, I 
I started working more really as a partner, I suppose, to Helen rather than as a sort of, um, you know, as a, a, an employee. Uh, and then we we hired uh, somebody called Danny Book Taylor, who was great to be the sort of next generation of our, you know, the next ECD. And so it ended up as the three of us really running the place, uh, running this uh, shop, which we had by this stage sort of sold to another company. But then we sort of thought, why don't we do it all together, the three of us from scratch, all, you know, partners and equals right from the beginning. Um, and that's really how we set up uh, Lucky Generals. And what's the story behind the name? The story is absolute panic and chaos because a couple, of, <laughs> a couple, like all the best things in life, a couple of days before we um, were due to launch, we had, we had a completely different name. It was all registered at company's house. I still get letters addressed to this other company hounding me from you know, HMRC. And for reasons that are too long-winded to go into, we decided we couldn't use that name. There's basically something happened in in the world that meant that the name felt inappropriate. And uh, so then we were left with it. We were launching in a couple of days, li- literally two or three days, and we had no name. And so, uh, you know, we had the interview with Campaign um, booked and we thought that's, that's going to be a bit of a disaster. Uh, so we went to the pub and had a lot to drink, came up with some absolutely terrible names. Uh, but this one was sort of stuck with us. And we liked it. Uh, I mean, it really, the, the truthful thing is a Napoleon quote, because somebody asked him, what do you look for in generals? Uh, he said, you know, just bring me your lucky generals. And it was also the name of a band from um, from Danny's youth that he wanted to be in. He wanted to um, create a band and he never got around to it. So the event, it's not quite as cool as starting your own rock band, but he he, he created a incorporated business instead. So yeah, no stages to trash or hotel rooms to trash, sadly. No, I think it's a good lesson that you sort of, you know, people fret about names and of course they are really important, but... It's a bit like babies, isn't it? Like you, you choose the name and then you have to sort of live and grow into it. And then people will look back and either say, oh God, that's such a good name. Or you could have ostensibly a great name. And, and but if you do shit work, everyone's just going to say, oh, that's a terrible name. You know, there's, there's lots of, there's some agencies that are, have got terrible names, but, but do great work. And we don't really bat an eyelid about them. Yeah, I made a similar point about football kits recently on a Tottenham podcast thing that I was on. And I said the same thing about our, 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 you know, you could quite fairly find our third kit absolutely horrific and vom-inducing. But I just said, look, I don't know, if we win the Champions League, I'll love it. Because that's what you then get the associated memories of, like, retrospectively. It's one of those things. Yeah, exactly. We all we all sort of impose that sort of retrospective history. And were you lucky in your early days or were you? was it tough? Tell us about the first few few weeks and months. It was so exciting. I really recommend it to anyone who ever gets the chance. Um, it is mildly terrifying because we had started, you know, we deliberately didn't want any to take any existing clients or existing people. It was really just the three of us. And then actually quite early on, before we'd even started, we got offered uh, like a really big sum of money to do some some work for a financial services company that would have, you know, basically been all the first year's income on a plate uh, without a pitch. And, but, but when we spoke to them, they the, we didn't like their sort of way of doing business or their ethics. It's, it seemed like a sort of bad business model. So we sort of declined that um, and, and then had a, a little sort of moment of, you know, we didn't regret that, but you did, you did, you did concentrate the mind thinking, right, shit, we just turned down all that money. We better make a success of this. And then the first thing that came in was, uh, was it was Paddy Power of all things, who would not be top of our list of the sort of sector to work with, but they, they came in with a brief that was all about uh, tackling homophobia in football. So we thought, okay, that's a bit different. We'll we'll try that. We'll we'll partner up with Stonewall and eventually 
Um, you know, this became the Rainbow Laces campaign that, that we're now doing again, but now without Paddy Power, just as a Stonewall initiative, you know, sort of nine years later. And so it was a sort of a, and it lost us loads of money. Actually, so we'd, so we'd now turned down a, a big account with loads of money. And to make things worse, we'd just taken on a tiny thing because they had no money. Um, as, as we always joked, it was literally market on a shoestring because um, it was Rainbow Laces. And we were sort of losing money all over the place, but having fun and doing good work and, you know, exciting stuff on an important topic. And and then really things, you, you just got to hold your nerve when you're doing a startup. You, you you will be judged by your first work. And so make sure it's something good. Um, and then all the rest will hopefully fall into place, which it sort of seemed to do. And then given the word Lux in your name, and I know you've just sort of, uh, you've kind of explained how that name came about and it wasn't necessarily as planned as, as you know, people may assume. Why did you start writing about luck? Well, beyond the, I mean, obviously there's a sort of slight bit of shameless sort of uh, usage of a, a word that's associated with agency, but in, in, a, in a weird way, um, it was less to do with that and and sort of almost despite having an agency called Lucky Generals, I wrote a book about luck because I got a bit embarrassed, if, honestly. I sort of thought, because as, as I've just explained, we didn't really put that much philosophical thought into it, quite the opposite. And so I'd never really interrogated what is luck, how does it work? Um, and then I, at the start of lockdown, I started maybe like a lot of us think, you know, sitting at home and having some pretty miserable thoughts about fucking hell, this is um, horrible and such bad luck. None of us deserve this. So I started thinking about how unlucky the whole thing it was. Um, but then also a lot of the other big issues of the last couple of years have made me think, no, hold on a minute, You've, you're actually really lucky in lots of other ways, you know, and this idea of privilege has obviously become quite a big thing for someone like me, you know, old, white, straight, able-bodied bloke, it sort of made me think, no, actually privilege and luck touches all these big issues in society right now, good luck and bad luck, and I don't, it's a bit embarrassing, I don't understand anything about it, even though it's sort of in my agent's name, so I thought I'd, I just sort of went on a little journey of finding out about it, because I was interested in it. Um, and then the book sort of fell out of that. How do you define luck? Because I know it's not, I, I think there's a few words and maybe it's just semantics where people can assume luck also means faith, also means, you know, various other kind of definitions. But how, how do you define it? Well, what I found is there's a couple of different definitions of luck. I think that there is a type of luck that is a bit like fate where you've got no control over it. So, you know, force of nature, force of God or whatever it is. And then there's the others. So it's not much useful to us in business because you you can't really do anything about it. There's a sort of demographic luck, which uh, Warren Buffett calls um, winning the ovarian lottery. So that's what I sort of described before, you know, where you're just by for you know, by privilege, exactly. You're just born into, and that, that is quite useful to, I think, to at least understand and recognize, because I think it's just very helpful and healthy for you to be aware of that and that can spur you on to bigger things and then then the sort of luck that i became more interested in because it's the sort of thing you can do more about is the definition of where opportunity meets a prepared mind and i can't remember who's i think there's various people who've claimed to have invented that definition but i like the fact that it is about keeping your eyes open for opportunities they might you know be all in all sorts of different places but there's still a skill and preparedness required you got you got to be able to recognize the opportunity when it's you know uh, shouting at you or you know when opportunity is uh, knocking on your door you still got to be able to realize what its significance is because I, th- I think one of the problems with luck is that people think it's the opposite of skill and intelligence 
as opposed to you know an accompaniment you like you got to you got to use your skill and intelligence to make use of the lucky opportunities it's not just i'm not telling everyone don't don't practice don't learn don't uh try hard you know just hope that lucky stuff comes your way because that doesn't work um but i am saying that uh if you're conscious of your luck uh and the role of luck in life uh, you're going to be much more able to sort of change your um chances yeah and there's things you can do to kind of better your chances of being lucky and kind of manifest luck yeah it's, it's basically i mean if you think about it luck is and again one of the reasons in the west that we sort of are a bit stiffy about it is that it sounds superstitious but you know, and unscientific but actually it's it's very mathematical luck is just probabilities and chance and you know statistically there are lots of things you can do to massively increase your chances of you know striking it lucky um so it's it's just shifting the statistics i guess in your favor but and like you said about us being perhaps i think i can't remember the word you used was it kind of a bit stiff about it but it does seem to be a bit of a taboo term to some people and maybe people just don't recognize it there's a lovely quote from nasim taleb says do not mistake dumb luck for extreme skill but i think rather people tend to justify any means of success i suppose retrospectively of course but then also skipping the part about luck maybe we're not you know we're too proud to admit that luck plays a role in our success yeah and no, i would agree with that quote in the, to the degree which because i think that's by by using the phrase dumb luck then I think he's talking about the sort of, you know, the fate aspect of luck that I was talking about before. So yeah, that, that's not going to, you know, help you at all. But it's more about um, consciously trying to, uh, you know, appreciate and change your luck. And like a lot of things in life, if you if you don't, if you don't recognize it exists in the first place, you're not going to be able to change it or it's a lot, a lot harder. You know, so the other quote that people throw up, throw at me all the time is, and again, it's got various sources. Of, you know, it's usually attributed to Gary Player. This sort of um, the harder I work, uh, the luckier I get, which is sort of true up to point. And as I say, I'm I'm not here to say hard work's not important. Um, but that is a falsehood, and it's you know as a as a sort of a, as the answer to everything that that doesn't help. Just just working hard manifestly doesn't make all the difference. There's lots of people in the world who work unbelievably hard and have got, you know, very little to show for it sort of thing. So I'm saying you do have to work hard, but there's also lots of different ways to work smarter. Um, and so to just deny the possibility of luck is is a really pointless thing, I think. Um, you suggest people practice being lucky every day. How, how can people practice being lucky? How can they best improve their odds? Well, uh, one uh, way to do that, we've sort of, you mentioned the word manifest uh, and, you know, that there's quite a lot of science. Again, this is like empirically proven that if you um, if you take a moment to uh, sort of accept and acknowledge the, the good luck in your life, then you are more likely to succeed. Um, and that, I think, applies in our personal lives, but also in our working relationships. And what I what I noticed as I sort of went back over my sort of career through this lens, I've not really thought about it before, but I sort of realized so many of the breakthroughs have actually just been through simply acknowledging the good things within a business, not not just my sort of things that I've worked on, but, you know, companies that have done great stuff. A lot of the time it's just to, they took the moment to acknowledge the stuff that was sitting right under their nose, like they, 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 um, appreciated that they had a brilliant history or that they had amazing data or great people 
or that they came from an amazing place. But and a lot of that stuff sounds like bleeding obvious in retrospect, but but quite often companies don't appreciate all of those things. Um, and a lot of the time, I think our job in agencies is just to help companies appreciate the good stuff that's right under their noses. So that that I think is uh, is one really obvious way, you know, very practical way is just you know, take five minutes today and just think this brand challenge that I'm working on, what is lucky about this brand? What is absolutely amazing about it? Um, what have they got up their sleeve that nobody else has that they just take for granted? Because all companies do that. They take stuff for granted that is sitting under their nose. The quote I used in your intro about wishing bad luck upon yourself in a good way, is that is there a parallel between that comment there and the point you were making and actually the Rainbow Laces campaign that you've also uh, touched on briefly earlier? Because I've heard you say, you know, it was a shoestring budget, which <laughs> therein lies the answer. Yeah, though well, that's it, exactly. You... Um... Sometimes, the, you know, very often in, a, in the field of creativity, something that looks like a terrible limit and restriction turns out to be your saviour, doesn't it? You know, you, you, you find a taboo or a flaw or a myth or, you know, something like the, the fact that you've got a, a small budget or you've got no time. And those things that look like they're really bad luck turn out to be the best thing about the brief because it, it forces you to think in a different way that you wouldn't have... Um, you know, used if you had like loads of resource or loads of sort of advantages. So, and again, I think that's a a good rule in life is that often being lucky is just about how you deal with bad luck and how you can sort of turn that. There's some kind of quick practical ways that you can sort of try and turn bad things in your life or in, in your work that it, into good stuff. Time, weather, and we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles, at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod-listing companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand positioning. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. And it's probably the world's simplest idea. I call it the golden circle. Yeah, golden shower, more like. You don't want Simon Sinek, you want a proper marketing chat, don't you? Hang on. Is there anything you do within the agency in terms of how you approach briefs then or when you're working with brands that, that correlates with, with that advice and, and, and focusing on brands and where they may have some hidden luck? Yeah, I think we, we've always done it implicitly. And as I say, I hadn't, you know, so I can't pretend that we were doing this from day one. And then since thinking a bit more consciously about this, I've tried to encourage us all to do the things that we do in a good day anyway but to try and do them a bit more often so that exercise of being mindful and conscious of the good things in your uh, client's armory is often the bit we skip over because because uh, it's obvious stuff it's like um, yeah well you know obviously they've got you know x y and z advantages but but precisely because they're obvious that often gets skipped out um and, and it feels like too familiar and isn't it too obvious and too stupid? Well, no, actually sort of stupidly obvious stuff is often like the best stuff because it's the quickest stuff that human beings are going to, you know, find a connection with. So just making sure that people don't pass over that. Um, and I think the other thing we just talked about there, the idea of um, turning bad luck, you know, we've got, a, we often skip over that bit as well, where the, the, the sort of um, disadvantages that a company might have, we, we don't want to dwell on that because um, we want to get them to get to the briefing, the bit of the briefing where they tell us what is unique about the product or what is good about it or whatever. 
but actually getting them to dwell about dwell on all the bad stuff can actually be really helpful because then maybe you can turn it on its head. So yeah, we're, we're just trying to be more conscious of it, I suppose. The other thing actually I've heard you, you you say in another interview, referencing, I think it was businesses in Silicon Valley that set up their workplaces intentionally so people mix and bump into each other, whereas in other uh, establishments they might not. Is that something that you do yourself within your office environment? Yeah, we're completely mixed up. Like, you know, other a lot of agencies have got, you know, the creative floor, where you kind of need a passport to, you know, get get into. I don't know if people still do that now. That that used to be the case, and I I still hear sort of horror stories of that sort of. Even if it's not literally true, it's sort of kind of spiritually true. But everyone's mixed up here. Everyone has to bump in each other. We don't set people in account teams. We don't make anybody. We have an absolute policy. Nobody works a hundred percent on the same account because then you're in a little ghetto, you know. So as much as we possibly can, we mix people and levels and disciplines and you know also hiring diversely that's a a, as well as being the ethical right thing to do it just that massively increases your chances of striking it lucky because you're going to have different influences to bring a a challenge so yeah it's it's again taking it making it conscious that as you say the silicon valley thing of you know that 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 can happen by chance and by fluke and by fate and all those other words we've used but you can engineer that to make it happen by being conscious of it and thinking more explicitly about your processes and um, you know seating layouts and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure you're right about this. Still, at least spiritually, being that kind of departments and walls and you know ghetto, <laughs> ghetto as you nicely put it. There's loads of examples in the book, obviously, and we're going to really promote the book and encourage people to buy Go Luck Yourself. But are there any examples you can share of brands that have been born lucky? Born lucky. Well, we work with um, Virgin Atlantic and weirdly, so maybe this is luck as well. I hadn't really thought of this, but um, I I wrote the book obviously before we won Virgin Atlantic. So maybe this was manifesting it because I'd worked with them previously. The the common thread is that they, they have been an amazing, obviously iconoclastic company that like to do things differently. Um, You know, the current line is see the world differently. And at the heart of both the work we're doing now and, and previously, um, it was a real truth that their people are amazing, you know, which sounds like stating the bleeding obvious, um, but there's just something different and intangible about Virgin people and the people they attract. They're, they, you know, they don't follow a script. You know, they are, um, they're just more human fun uh, than, you know, conventional big airline sort of, um, you know, um, brands. So, but how do you package that? That was the hard thing. So back in the day, and this is, probably more of the Virgin Holidays part of the business, we had this idea of uh, rock stars. We we sort of thought that the thing that really, you know, Virgin's roots, you know, talk about being born lucky. I, I think it's always really interesting to go back to the roots of a company. And they started off as a music business, but then, you know, started an airline, which is a pretty amazing story. And the reason probably that they've got a bit of rock and roll and a bit of swagger and a bit of not doing things conventionally is that, you know, they'd spent the first 10, 15, 20 years of their existence hanging out with you know the sex pistols and people like that so we thought there was a truth that if you can if you can cater for uh rock stars um then you can probably give everyone a great you know uh customer service experience and once we got this idea of rock star service then everything became so easy you could um you could you, you could hire the roadie from the grateful dead to uh to, to, to give the staff, you know, sort of um, training uh, course rather than some boring HR 
sort of lecture. You could get get a road in to share all the great stories about how you how you look after you know prima donna rock stars, or you could have you know we had inflatable televisions in the room that you could chuck out the window and stuff like that. <laughs> I I think that was that's a a an example of a company where a lot of the advantages were sort of baked into the DNA of the brand way before we ever got hold of them. And again, it's just sort of a case of dusting off that heritage and DNA and, um, you know, expressing it, you know, in, in an interesting way. You know, sometimes you have to invent it, but that, that was a case of where it was baked in. You mentioned there, uh, we're talking about how you can kind of improve your chances of being lucky in that, that structural nod to Silicon Valley businesses. You, you mentioned hiring diversely and I want to give a nod and a big shout out and maybe you can talk a bit more on commercial break and James Hillhouse and, and the team there but something that's really important that you've done that might not get shouted about enough is is you're donating the royalties for the book to commercial break so for listeners who might not be familiar with them can you explain what they do and why it's important to support them yeah they're a brilliant and uh... Uh, social enterprise which exists to yeah, increase representation amongst working class talent based on the premise that a lot of you know of, out of all the different things that we are rightly concerned about um, in terms of representation class is quite sort of a common denominator you know intersects with all the other big things like you know race and you know gender and all the rest of it um, so they're, they're whole things about working class talent and they work with candidates to make them more um, sellable and to sort of build their confidence and skills and also you know provide financial assistance with their um, quests uh, and they also work with companies to you know increasingly uh, more importantly to sort of make them welcoming places you know because you know the inclusion aspect is sort of almost more important than you know, there's no point in recruiting people diversely if you then have a very uninclusive environment so they they've done all this great work and we've worked with them before really successfully thought thought they were amazing and so I liked the idea of a book about luck, bringing luck to other people. And I guess this year alone, it's we've we've handed over a check for over ten grand, and then um, we've had lots of donations in kind. You know, because other people have said, "Oh, well, I can donate lots of training." So about twenty thousand pounds worth of training. Somebody started off an apprenticeship um, off the back of it. That was thirty grand. So it's you know they're they're. Um, you know, it's not the biggest sums of money in the, you know, given the scale of the challenge, but that every penny of that makes a difference to someone who's, you know, who just needs a new, you know, it's literally somebody who might need a train fare to get across London. But that, that's where some of the money's gone and is, is to give candidates a, a chance to get into the bloody interview in the first place. Um, so it's been nice to think that that's, you know, money that doesn't necessarily make a huge difference to us can make a massive difference to someone else. Yeah, no, hats off to you, mate. I think it's absolutely... No, thanks. Um, you've also, before we move to listener questions, I will, I, I, and I've only learned this, if I'm honest, reading through the research for today's episode, is that Lucky Generals is doing its bits too, and you have something called the barracks, where you rent a flat near the agency so interns can live in the city without you know, all that, uh, all that stress and anxiety and worry about paying rent. Is that right? Yeah, it has, I have to say it has been uh, somewhat disrupted by uh, lockdown and flexible working but that is uh that, that's how we want to continue sort of going it's been a bit more sporadic than we would have liked for obvious reasons um but the principle is that um accommodation is one of one of the greatest costs for any young person in uh london or other big cities around the world and so i feel like we've got to think more creatively 
uh, about how we address these problems of representation. And there's no point in, you might find a great candidate and you might, um, from a diverse background, and you might have a really inclusive culture, but if they literally can't afford to, to sort of work in the city that you're in, um, you know, that, that's not helpful. You know, so, and it's not the only answer, you know, having offices around the world, you know, or around the country might help, you know, um, for other people just being flexible working, you know, we've really embraced that. We've got people in Dublin and, you know, even somebody in Argentina who sort of, uh, you know, works for us just, uh, you know, a couple of weeks on, a couple of weeks off type sort of thing in the, in the office. Um, so everything's much more possible now to, to, to sort of make sure that you've got the widest possible number of people working for you. Well, I mean, again, hats off to you because I think it's such a great idea and I hope it's one that other agencies copy. Thank you. I'm going to move to listener questions now, Andy. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us. And actually, we've got three we're going to put to you today. Starting with Alex Bone. So Alex says, what is Andy's favourite brew, Yorkshire tea or Taylor's coffee bag? Ah, see, we've nicked that, haven't we, for our quick fire. So we can concentrate on the second part, which is which campaign took longer to brew? Ah, good question. Um, now, I, I should preface this by saying that I've got no personal uh, involvement. I can't claim any of the glory. I love both uh, campaigns. Um, but I think Taylor's was take, took a little bit longer to brew, if I'm honest. I think because we won the pitch with Yorkshire Tea and got quite quickly to um, Yorkshire. And they already used a word, um, the word proper because they do things proper there. And the, the twist there was we, so this is again a, a good example of just taking something that's sitting right in front of you. Um, we thought it would, rather than talk about them doing things proper, like, you know, the, getting the right tea and the right leaves and quality control and stuff like that, it was, that was a bit boring. So if we showed how they treated everything proper, then, you know, um, from the way they did the interviews to the way that they, the couriers worked, um, then the, the idea was where everything's done proper. And so you just have lots of fun showing, you know, Patrick Stewart doing the leaving speech and Parkinson doing the interviews and um, all these other great Yorkshire stars doing things properly. And so that 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 was incredibly successful. Um, and it was sort of born out of the pitch. Whereas I think with Taylor's, it took us a long time to work out, you know, coffee and, you know, it's obviously such a crowded marketplace and, what's the tailor's role in there. But uh, the, the idea we got to, I love it because it's sort of almost anti-strategic. It was, it was to launch some coffee bags and we kept on sort of, um, you know, obviously speaking to the NPD guys, they were saying how incredible these coffee bags are because it's quite hard to make a coffee bag. Um, in, it's not as easy as making a tea bag for lots of boring technical reasons. And we kept on trying to sort of understand the boring technical reasons and yada, 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 and think how revolutionary it was. But every time we told the creatives, they were sort of like, yeah, but it's just, isn't it just tea bags though with coffee in it? And it, <laughs> it was such a sobering, absolute humiliation for the account team, the strategists and the clients. And every time we came back with, no, no, it's much more complicated. Yeah, but it's just, it's just tea bags with coffee in it. And, What's taking them so fucking long? They've been how long they've been in business? What a hundred years? It's like ridiculous. And and actually, then that became that we thought, yeah, you're right. And so, to their great credit, the client because it's quite self-deprecating. The idea became what you know, why did it take us so long? And then we we sort of just acknowledge, yeah, this is a bit dumb. And I think that that's really helpful, you know, because obviously people in the outside world are they don't understand the technical challenges of making coffee bags versus tea. So sometimes you're better to 
no, they don't give a shit. So you, you're better to sort of dumb it down and sort of have some fun with it and not, you know, people, we're all living in our own category so much that we get obsessed by what we do and nobody, nobody really cares. So um, that was a lot of fun, but it took a little bit longer to brew. Uh, Graham Fraser next. So he says, does Andy have any perspectives on the B2B side? Anyone he thinks is producing great work or any accounts he thinks he'd enjoy working on? So there's a few there. So any perspectives on B2B? Well, my perspective generally is, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the first to say this, but B2B, uh, there are some specific differences, but but really you've got to see it through a human lens that these are people who are buying, you know, on behalf of a corporation, but they're still human beings. They're either entrepreneurs who's, you know, it's, and it's their business and their livelihood, and their baby. So that's like super personal to them. Um, but also they're, you know, if not, they're buyers within an organization and, you know, they're, they're not robots either. It, it's not, um, it's not like they're only making choices based on price or, you know, rational stuff. Actually, it can be some of the most emotional decisions. You know, the, the best business to business line ever wasn't, a, wasn't an actual slogan, but it was an old adage uh, was nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. And that used to be what American sort of IT procurement people used to say, uh, which sort of speaks to, it's, it's not about the spec and it's not about, you know, the long list of product features that, you know, everyone could do. It was just that nobody's going to question IBM because the brand is so powerful that, you know, it's about job safety and security, um, which is a very emotional appeal rather than, uh, you know, wanging on about the product. And, you know, often you find in, in business that there's an in B2B, that there's a much better product out there um, but that's not enough um, because people still in that circumstance buy brands and buy based on emotion. So you got a, your job is to have a great product and then find an emotional way of presenting it too. So the third one might be trickier. Simon Akers, apart from asking why he's such a hero, I mean, there's a there's a cue for the Andy Nens fan club, Simon, and I believe Richard Huntington's just in front of me, to be fair. Uh, he'd like to know your thoughts on how to apply behaviour change for the new Gamble Aware win, which is a recent win for Lucky Generals, and where his head's at for that generally. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And obviously, I can't say exactly what we're doing because it, it, it's yet to come out. Uh, obviously, it's also really nice that, having I said, our first client was Paddy Power, so there's a nice sort of arc of redemption uh, as we come up to... <laughs> Our tenth birthday party, and, and actually one of the people that we had, which will be good in the Andy Nen movie. Yeah, that's right. He came good in the end. Uh, and joking aside, obviously it is a really serious issue. And you know, the, the reason we worked with Paddy Power in the first place was it was really because of that Rainbow Laces brief, rather than encouraging people a bit. But obviously, uh, it's a huge behavioural issue, not least because you know a massive proportion um, of the country of, of in the UK bet. Um, and for, for a lot of people, it's quite a harmless thing. Because obviously, you know, at, at, when the Grand National comes, a lot of us, and I include myself, you know, we're literally putting bets on with our kids and getting the newspaper out and, you know, sort of teaching them, you know, crudely about odds and stuff like that. So people people bet, but but obviously, um, there, you know, there are lots of ways in which individuals can become addicted it's a it's a health problem and an addiction and and actually the companies in some cases in many cases have behaved pretty disgracefully about encouraging that so but the, but the real problem from a behavioral thing is which i guess is the question is is the stigma that around, surrounds it 
because like I've worked on a lot of behavior briefs. I'm sure you have too, and lots of your listeners will have to, where at least you've got the goodwill of the population sort of, you know, willing on the good cause that you're addressing, if you know what I mean. You're, you're sort of, if, you know, if it's an, Ill, an illness, you know, people are, you know, cancer awareness or whatever it is, you know, you've, you're, 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 you're operating in a benign environment. Whereas in, in the case of gambling, unfortunately, there's a lot of cultural sort of conversation about uh, it's other people's, you know, it's your fault, you're an idiot, you're a loser, um, it's a disgrace, you're harming your family. Um, and that, that unfortunately makes it very difficult for people to talk about it and to, um, you know, get the help that they need. So I think I'm not giving any secrets away by saying that addressing the stigma really around, around gambling harms is going to be pretty crucial. Uh, so it's quite tricky, but uh, incredibly fulfilling. I mean, to, to use marketing language, I, I don't think gambling has ever been so mentally or physically available to people which i think in itself is a massive problem yeah i think that is it and, and that you know um means that new in the same way that the industry is using so many more new ways to be with enough you know finger or thumbs you know click i think we've got to think quite cleverly it's going to be really interesting working with the guys at omnigov on the media placement you know how do you get into that environment when people are just about to get themselves into trouble sort of thing and how also do you you occupy some of the places that the gambling brands are now getting chased out of you know that that actually opens up little gaps that we can sort of um, find our way into but it's it's incredibly difficult it's it's obviously not something that communications can wave a magic wand at but it is also and I really absolutely passionately believe this that comms can play a really powerful role in behavioral change campaigns and so uh, it, it, there's a lot of hope there as well as a lot of challenge. Uh, the final part of the interview then, Andy, is our four pertinent poses, starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, we've talked about this before in a, in a separate um, instance, but uh, it would be to not worry about being the loudest person in the room and to try and be the best listener in the room. I think listening's in a massively underrated skill and when you first come into the industry everyone you know for the right reasons tells you to you know speak up and find your voice and don't be quiet and and I was I was very shy and quiet coming in and felt a bit out of you know uh you know out of my depth or out of my environment and look at me now I'm an I'm egomaniac on a podcast <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but no I think you, you sort of learned that um you sort of learn after a few years that loudness and shoutiness is not the, the best people obviously can articulate themselves really well, but all the best people I've worked with have been absolutely brilliant listeners. So that would be my advice. Don't, don't beat yourself up if, if someone's sort of saying you, you need to be noisier, you need to be, you know, uh, less of a wallflower. Don't be so shy and all that kind of, sort of stuff. Yeah, brilliant. And there's a longer piece of advice there packaged up in a great isolated talks video called Listen Up, which we will link to on this episode too that Andy kindly donated. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I've thought long and hard about this and it dances big tables. Um, <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so I'm going to have to explain that now. Aren't I? Um, big tables because uh, the big tables lead to big meetings where nobody does anything and it, it's boring. I hate them. And uh, they're just really 
not not constructive. And what I've and and actually, I don't even really mean this just metaphorically. I sort of do a little bit, but I, physically, we have banned big tables. We don't have. We 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 tried one for a meeting very early on, and we felt really unnatural and uncomfortable with it. And it turned into one of those big meetings where it just filled up with people, and it was very corporate. And so we got rid of that. I mean, we've never had one since. We've we've just sit around sofas, and then you have a much more, you know, just like a natural chat about what the problem is, rather than adopt those sort of posing and posturing, different people around a big table and and a cast of thousands. You know, I'd, I'd always much rather have a small meeting with a couple of people who are going to try and do something rather than 20 or 30 people around the table of which you probably won't lead to any action so get rid of big tables that's my advice at what point does a table become big Andy it's a good point or is it relative to the amount of people that are meant to be sat there yeah it's sort of anything more than half a dozen sort of people I'm maybe really antisocial uh starts to make me feel a bit twitchy yeah I just I feel you know that um if, if everybody's contributing, then that's a different thing. But it rarely happens that way. There are huge numbers of people sitting at a table just costing money when they could, and probably being bored and not contributing and actually inhibiting. Um, so it's not even that they're not in contributing, they're actually making it worse. So um, I would split it up and you know go off and do something else instead. Cool. Love it. That's definitely not come up before. Love it even more. Um, any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I like... Uh, I like, I've always liked Brand Splaining um, by Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts. That's a very good sort of uh, on, you know, the role of, you know, how, how brands still talk down to women um, years after we all thought that they were going to stop doing that and how we can, you know, stop them doing that. Um, and there's a book by a chap in Ireland called Paul Dervan. Have you read this? It's called Run With Foxes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I met Paul a couple of years ago. He's a lovely bloke. Oh, did you? He's a very, very lovely person, but also I've got a really wise book from a client perspective, but incredibly creative as well. Just about, it's a, it's a, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it in a nutshell. It's a, a, a client perspective on creativity and on brand building. Very, very easily well written. And I, I sort of whizzed through that. So I would recommend that one. And then number four, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. Would you do the honours? Uh, I would. I've got an, quite an obscure one because uh, I know you've had, lo- you've had a hundred of these before. Um, right. When I was little, there was uh, some sort of crazy old lady sort of moved to our village and she was called Jane Cowan and I want to dedicate it to her. Because she she was little unknown to us, she was an amazing cellist, one of the best cellists in the world. Or and particularly, she was a great cello teacher. And she but she was sort of almost retiring. She was in her late sixties, seventy or something like that. And um, she inherited this massive house in our in in our village. I'll, I'll get to the point in a second. But the point is that she so she got this huge house and she she opened up this thing called the International Cello School, which is like a ludicrous thing to have outside this village in the middle of nowhere in the Scottish borders. And then she she sort of got all these, all the great and the good, like all the best classical musicians in the world to come and learn from her. Um, you know, and us locals, none of us knew who these any of these people were. Um, and the, what her proviso was that she, she would teach them um, and, and also, you know, lots of incredible virtuoso students, young people coming up, you know, through the ranks. She would, she would teach them only if they also taught uh, the local kids. 
And so she came into our comprehensive school with these incredible instruments. I mean, like absolute, you know, not the sort of usual school run of the mill instruments. So she was giving out instruments to everyone. She was giving out lessons to everyone from like extraordinary musicians. Um, and, and I ended up getting a... Um, I ended up getting a cello from her um, and my sister got a flute and, you know, all my mates were getting like double basses and, you know, oboes and stuff like that. And so this funny little, very, very average little comprehensive started to, you know, everyone was not saying that we were world beaters, but it was just a sort of funny, funny world. And we used to go and stay in this big stately home and sleep on the floor in rooms of like 20 or 30 with the teachers in as well. As someone has since remarked, because someone has written a book about this woman, it, the safeguarding was not of the standards of, you know, there, nothing wrong went, ha, you know, happened, I don't think, but it was sort of the sort of thing you wouldn't do now, like everyone's just sleeping in one big room with the teachers and um, for a week at a time. But it, it, it was an amazing sort of experience. The reason I sort of, joking aside, sort of say her is what, a, what an amazing dedication to creativity. She was in her 70s. She was so enthusiastic about, um, in her case, music. Um, she had this incredible passion for craft and for you know the history of classical music, but she she also had you know embraced new ideas. She was always kind of um, encouraging new ways of playing to sort of come through, uh, and 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 wanting to put something back. And, and I just always thought she's. I was glad when I found out that somebody written a book about. Her. I think somebody's sold film rights to her as well. Like I really imagine that being an amazing film. Um, and the the final sort of epilogue to it is for my fiftieth. Couple of years ago, my wife. So I've not obviously I'd forgotten all about this person for, you know, thirty years or so. And then my wife um, got me a cello because <laughs> she's heard me bang on about this person before. Um, and I can't say I'm uh, ever going to be at the Royal Albert Hall anytime soon. But um, it's given me massive amount. It was in lockdown and it, it gave me so much pleasure. And I just sort of thought that that lady who died, you know, probably twenty years ago. She did become a mark on me and and is a good lesson, you know, good example for all of us in terms of, you know, creativity and its power. So I want to, this goes out to Jane Cowan. What a wonderful story. That's absolutely wonderful, Andy. I love that. Well, this this episode is is so very proudly dedicated to Jane Cowan. Um, as a final call to action, then everyone everyone listening can find links on this episode too. Go Luck Yourself, which is Andy's book that I would encourage you to, to purchase. Uh, listen up, Andy's isolated talk that we mentioned. We'll link to Run With Foxes and Brands Planing. Uh, how else can our listeners get more Andy Nen? Oh my God, I'm sure they don't want any more, but um, that's, the main, that's the main things. I'm on Twitter, obviously, um, uh, until we all <laughs> jump ship from that horrendous uh, bin fire that's happening at the moment. Yeah, and I I pop up. You'll you, you, I'm hard to ignore. Oh, the, actually, the other thing I want to say is um, I'm we're just about to launch a pack of cards um, based on on uh, Go Luck Yourself. So uh, and all the money, all the royalties and profits go to Commercial Brook again. So by the time this is out, I think the cards will be out too. So that's another way to uh, enjoy it in a different format. Fantastic. We'll find a link for that. Or you can send us one if one one materialises. But thank you so much, Andy. I've loved chatting. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Likewise, really, really enjoyed it as ever. Thank you, mate. And uh, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co.
to action I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try and I try